Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books Network. I'm Jim Cates. Matthew Batt is on the faculty at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He teaches creative writing with a specialty in nonfiction. A few years ago, he received a full-year sabbatical, but he soon found that the halftime salary that came with it left his family desperately short of money. He filled the gap by working in a trade he knew well, the restaurant business. Bat loved the work and stayed on part-time even after his sabbatical ended. So it was that he witnessed the entire life cycle of a restaurant called The Brewer's Table, run by a craft brewing company in Minneapolis. The restaurant closed after about two years in business, shortly after it had been named one of the 10 best restaurants in the United States by Food and Wine magazine. His new book is called the Last Supper Club, A Waiter's Requiem. It was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2023. Matthew Batt, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. Your path in life is one that's, I guess, maybe a little unusual as uh, as professors go. It took you from Wisconsin to Boston to Columbus, Ohio, uh, then to Utah, uh, before you grabbed the brass ring of a tenure-track position. I want to say congratulations on that. I know that is unusual for people who get doctorates in English, so uh, good for you there. You uh, worked along the way in a a number of restaurant jobs to supplement your income, and you worked with a rogues gallery of of very interesting people you mentioned in your book. You published a memoir about fixing up a former crack house in Salt Lake City, and you even had a teaching gig at a prison uh, so I don't think anyone could you, uh, accuse you of being a cloistered academic, could they? <laughs> no, yeah, I've uh, I've definitely worked in other jobs as much as I've worked in academia. Um, I think all told, oh, I put in like 11 or 12 years uh, in restaurants. Um, and then, yeah, I've done a little bit of everything too. Uh, but it's been about half teaching, half working in restaurants, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to be clear, uh, to, to start with the title, The, the Last Supper Club, uh, the Brewer's Table, uh, which was associated with a, a, a very large and successful craft brewing company in Minneapolis in a great big modernist uh, building there in a, in a reclaimed industrial area. The, brewery, the Brewer's Table was a, a, a very highly aspirational fine dining restaurant, uh, not necessarily a supper club, at least to me, I'm Wisconsinite. So a supper club brings to mind a kind of a cozy and casual place, um, usually with knotty pine walls and a relish tray on a lazy Susan. 
your title itself refers to a meal you had with your mother in Wisconsin some some years ago. And it was, in, in your description, the ideal version of what a memorable dining experience could be like. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So it was when I was, you know, 16, I think, and my mom was going through her second divorce or, or was just about to, I should say. Um, and in order to both celebrate and break it to me, uh, she she took me out to the nicest place she could think of, which uh, at that time in southeast Wisconsin was was a place called Heaven City out in McGuanago. And, you know, this was, oh, it had to be the late 80s, early 90s. I think it would have been 89 or 90. Um, and so I think like Charlie Trotter and Alice Waters and, you know, those sort of fancy West Coast people who made the phrase farm to table uh, popular. Um, they were working and alive and well, but you know, that, that kind of language and that kind of mentality hadn't made it to the, the middle of the country yet. Um, and, and yet at the same time, there was, you know, in the middle of Waukesha County, right off national Avenue, um, was this, uh, supper club that was just, uh, I don't know. It was just the epitome of a beautiful space and a good time and caring service. Uh, and, and like I say, like we didn't have the phrase, but it was farm to table cuisine. You know, there, I remember I had some kind of like local duck and my mom had, uh, uh, like a pork loin that was stuffed with regional cherries and nuts and stuff. And it was just epiphanic as an experience. It was just one of the, the best times in a restaurant I'd ever had. And, even though, you know, at that age, I don't think I had any idea what I wanted to do. Um, I knew part of it had to be working in restaurants, at least for a little while. Um, and that it definitely, that meal definitely put me on a path um, that in some ways, you know, uh, what, 30 years later or something like that would, would be realized with, with this job at the brewer's table. Most restaurants... Uh, I'm talking about, forget about chain restaurants. We're really not talking about them at all. But most most restaurants fit a template. You you can go to a, a burger joint. Some of them are very good. Yep. A steakhouse, uh, a red sauce, Italian restaurant, a Chinese place. Um, as I say, some of these places are very good, but they generally offer diners things that they they know they're going to get the diners know what to expect and the brewer's table is part of this really small group of restaurants that kind of reinvent food every day and that of course had a, had an enormous impact on your job as part of the wait staff yeah that's totally true um i remember when i interviewed for uh for the position i all i knew was they were opening a restaurant at a popular brewery and as a lot of servers do, you know, you just go where the money is. Um, and if it's busy, you're, you're going to make pretty good money as a rule of thumb. But the first question the, uh, the manager asked me, it was like, how do you feel about fancy food? And I'm like, oh, you know, I've worked at steakhouses. I've worked at like uh, fresh fish places. Like I, I love fancy food. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about like duck tongues and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I've, I have had duck, um, but probably only once or twice in my life. And I certainly didn't know that they had tongues. And if they did, that I, it, it, it astonished me that they were edible. Yeah, I um, guess I, I, that's one of the things you never think about. Really. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it was like that, that was really 
completely emblematic of the kind of food that they would end up serving. We never had a steak. We never had chicken. Everything required explanation. And it, was, it wasn't like uh, fusion and it wasn't deconstructed cuisine. It was just like food reimagined. Yeah, every day um, we would get like a spec sheet of the ingredients of the, you know, just like what, what comprised these dishes. And, you know, they had names that um, I think if you, if you really go to like high-end restaurants, you'd be familiar with um, stuff like panzanella or, uh, you know, rabbit rillettes or stuff like that, you know, but it's kind of the, the sort of thing that you need to know your way around an Escoffier gourmet dictionary. Um, and I certainly didn't, but it was, but that's, I think part of what was so cool about it is like every day we had no idea what was coming next. Um, and unlike most restaurants who, you know, once something gets popular, it just gets locked in and it will always be on the menu. Um, whenever something got popular at the brewer's table, they 86 it for good. You know, it was just like, well, we did that. That was cool. Like now let's, you know, invent a different wheel. It was I remember really something. At, at one point you described the, the, the kitchen of the restaurant on the back of the kitchen looking almost sort of like a lab with all these hotel pans and containers and things in progress, obscure vinegars or krauts marinating away. Uh, many of these things were experiments. Some would make it to the menu, some would not. So it was, it was like, a, like a sort of a laboratory atmosphere there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's what made it um, so cool is they had the time and space and creativity, really, um, to just kind of try to do wacky stuff, like make a strawberry vinegar or like try to infuse beer with flavors that nobody had ever thought of before and, and try to pair as no one in the world, except for like one crazy high-end restaurant in Brooklyn was doing at the time. Mm-hmm try and pair high-end food exclusively with beer, which I, I feel like now doesn't sound that amazing, but, but at the time, there was nobody doing it. Um, and it was really, I don't know, it was part of the, what, what I think landed us on that food and wine best restaurant list. And I think it was also what guaranteed our doom um, because in the end, people who go to like really high-end restaurants, uh, they expect wine, they expect cocktails. Uh, they don't expect to have to go through like a factory to get there. And that's, of course, what every brewery uh, is at its heart. you know. And un- um, under the terms of the law in Minnesota, as I understand it, uh, a craft brewery could not also serve cocktails. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I'm not sure if it's a state law or if it's a... Um, municipal law or something like that, because I've, I've been to brew pubs in Minnesota elsewhere that have had, you know, a full, um, a, a full cocktail menu and all that stuff. Um, but boy, did it frustrate the heck out of people who, you know, they just wanted a glass of wine or, you know, a martini before their meal, um, and it was just, it was a daily struggle to try and like explain the fact that you know, no matter how little sense it made. We, we just didn't have wine. We just couldn't serve cocktails. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that was that was just too much. Um, at the same time, the brewers themselves, and not just the brewers at Surly, but brewers from all over the metro, all over the state, all over the Midwest, they were so stoked at, at our restaurant because finally it was like, not only was the brewery taking you know the beer seriously, but, but to 
take beer and high-end food for the first time seriously. You know, it was like they'd all been, I, I don't know, like all of a sudden just recognized for the kind of artists that they are um, alongside, of course, the chefs and, and cooks and all that. So, I guess one nice serendipitous aspect of, of your memoir is that you were hired at the brewer's table uh, a few weeks before it opened. Uh, it didn't even have a name yet. No, and, that's right. <laughs> you know, there was you knew there was going to be a restaurant. It was going to be upstairs in this this beautiful building in uh, in Minneapolis, and you know that it, this was a, a a high voltage kind of enterprise, and you were there for the entire life cycle um, from uh, envisioning to closing, which lasted something over two years. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, the, the even the training regimen was 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 pretty crazy. There was a lot of memorization and cue cards and all sorts of stuff like that, right? Yeah, it was it was nutty. Like what we had to do. Um, I I think I probably worked more to just figure out what the heck we were serving in those you know opening weeks um, than in all of the combined restaurants I worked at. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it was just I I'd never felt you know as somebody who uh, is a college professor and has these fancy degrees and all that. Uh, I guess I thought I knew what it meant to study and boy, was I wrong. I, I felt like, um, the average server I worked with at the brewer's table was so far ahead of me in terms of, um, culinary experience and, and knowledge and proficiency. It was really, uh, all I could do to keep up with these kids who were the same age as most of my students. Um, but were really like light years ahead of me in terms of experience, because they'd been working in, you know, like actual high, high end fine dining restaurants. This was a, a struck me as a pretty cool culture at the restaurant. Uh, you described craft brewing as a sort of heavy metal enterprise, which I liked. Uh, <laughs> uh, the brewer's table kind of mirrored these tendencies among your staff and even among some of your customers, a lot of black t-shirts, uh, tattoos, body piercings, and the like. I wonder if this, you know, how this affected the fine dining vibe, or did it really intensify this fine dining vibe in an edgy kind of way? And I wonder if it was off-putting to the older patrons. Yeah, you know, we we definitely um, welcomed everybody. And I think all of the servers, all of the chefs, all the bartenders and the brewers, everybody would work there like just loved how it was like, you know, it wasn't some like 1% upper crust elite club. It was like the world, you know? Um, and they were, it was, you know, some people resembled, resembled our parents. Some people resembled our, our doctors and dentists, but most people looked like our friends. And it was just, it was unlike in almost every way, any other restaurant I'd worked at where, you know, for the most part, you saw your parents, you saw, you know, uh, your, your orthodontist and whatnot. Um, the people who could afford to, to eat at a pretty nice, if, if not actually really nice place. Um, but the brewer's table was just, yeah, it was like the, the purest kind of melting pot as far as restaurants go. And yeah, you know, I, I it probably was <laughs> a little off-putting for people who were like uh, kind of coming to the brewer's table uh, like sight unseen on just the recommendation of like, you know, oh, what are some of the best new high-end restaurants in town? It's like, sweet, let's go to that before we go to the symphony or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it definitely was the kind of place where you would have been more uncomfortable in like 
you know, a, like a fancy dress or, or a suit or something like that, mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, a flannel, flannel shirt and your Carhartt pants or something. When uh, my daughters were in college, the, the older one at Marquette, the younger one at uh, University of Oklahoma and now at Michigan, I've told them both, I said, if you want to work with a really interesting, unusual, edgy group of people, you might look for a job at a good restaurant. And yeah. uh, it, it's hard to think of a more diverse and vibrant group of people that you might run into, especially in a larger city with a, with a good dining culture. Uh, you describe some of your coworkers as uh, as as earnest and even lovable uh some of them were not few of them were not um, yeah you were you were flattered when one called you cutie and then you realized she called everyone that um another one called you squirrel friend which i have has become part of my bio, uh vocabulary <laughs> now it's, it's a wonderful term squirrel right. friend some of them were recent immigrants who struggled with english and there were a couple of people in the group who uh, you refer to as scary smart, some of them literature students at the University of Minnesota. And you even had a fellow published writer on the staff, um, though it should be said that he wrote pornography. So this was quite a family, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. Um, and, and I think you're totally right. Like, I, I just don't think there's any place more interesting uh, to be or to work at than, than a restaurant. Um, and like just being at one you think you get it all but until you've been in the back of house you know uh hanging out with the prep cooks and the dishwashers and and everybody else uh you've you've never really seen a restaurant at its heart um and you know i'd like i said the same thing to my son who's uh just 16 now but uh for the last couple of summers he's worked uh at a, a local uh deli here um and i could just see something like unlocking him uh, with the people he meets at work. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's one of the coolest things, but there, there was definitely something unique about, um, the brewer's table in terms of like, there was so much diversity of, of background of like culture of just everything. Um, but the kind of baseline for everybody, it wasn't that they had all worked at like really nice restaurants. It's that they were all curious and passionate. Um, and that's how, that's how our manager hired everybody. Um, he hired lots of people with like no restaurant experience at all. Like one of our food runners, (laughs) oh man, this guy, um, he was, uh, you know, and this at, at a restaurant like the brewer's table to be a food runner, it means you have to know every single ingredient on every single dish. You don't just like drop plates and, you know, walk away. Um, and he hired this guy who had never worked in a restaurant before. Um, and he was so out of his depth. Um, at the same time, he worked harder than any of us and was funny. And he was a, like a singer and a dancer, despite the fact that he was like an awkward science teacher from North Dakota. Um, and it was just like everybody had something like that. They were they were interesting and um, complicated and always smart, but but always curious. Mm-hmm. And you do the you get these inquiries. Uh, you talked about the the soft opening of the restaurant, and you thought, well, it's just going to be a bunch of curious local people. No, it was mostly local cooks yeah. and chefs and servers and restaurant entrepreneurs and people who knew everything about food, and they knew that something cool was going on there because your chef had a reputation. 
and they would ask about every ingredient. Is this this kind of pepper or that kind of pepper? Yeah. What sort of sauce is this? Is this is this a duck tongue or maybe it's a goose tongue? I'm not sure. Right. And so you always had to have this kind of bizarre com- command of the material. I, I loved your anecdote about the uh, the customer who, customer who came in and she was looking over the menu, and she says, "Oh, could you explain this to me?" And you say, why, certainly, ma'am. Which part of it? And she said, the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we had to do that all the time. Like greeting a table there could be like a 25-minute endeavor um, because they did love to put, uh, you know, like really obscure kind of um, obtuse descriptions of dishes with like as few words as possible. So we had... Uh, a taco that was really not a taco, um, but but you know it said like taco veal non salsa mancha. Um, it was like, wait a second, so this is a veal taco, but it's like in pita or something. And anyway, that that was probably the dish that looked the most self-explanatory, but it you know it was it wasn't even just veal; it was veal tongue. It, it just is endless the the need to describe stuff, um, but at the same time, it it I think what what was going on when we described everything is that we weren't just like you know reciting a list of ingredients, but we we were telling the story of the restaurant, of the the recipes, the chef's curiosities, but also like of ourselves because you know it was a close quarters restaurant that only sat like fifty fifty five people I think. So, you know, there were only like seven or eight servers total, usually four or five of us on the floor at any given point. Um, So we could hear, you know, what everybody else was saying. So the more other people were into it, the more we realized like, oh, wow, I've got to live up to what Esme is doing at her table. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't like a one upsmanship kind of thing. It was it was just the sort of deal where you're like wow, everybody's like super into this. I guess that's cool here. I guess like, I guess it's okay to be like recklessly over the top invested into something. Restaurants fail. They go out of business um, at, of course, a, 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 an alarming rate. Um, yeah. As you know, you can't simply walk into a bank and say, oh, gee, I'd like a bank loan to start a restaurant. Uh, most of these uh, places are started on credit cards, Loans from family, a uh, little goodwill, a wing and a prayer, and and many of them don't make it. And uh, my wife and I have a sort of a standing joke between us. Whenever an, an interesting new place opens up, we will always say, quick, let's go try it out before it yeah. goes out of business. Yeah, Restaurants right. come and go. And what's interesting, though, is you, you describe this meeting with with the boss uh, at the, the, the Surly Brewing Company, the, the parent firm in Minneapolis. And just out of the blue, uh, the staff gathers and we're closing. Yep. Uh, some restaurants obviously fail because they can't pay the bills. And, you know, the, the, uh, the note comes due uh, or the credit card comes due and they just fold up and they're gone. So many others close for reasons that aren't immediately related to money. Uh, I think, for example, of family restaurants that are still showing a profit, 
but no one in the family wants to take it over. And it's simply more work than it's worth to keep it running. Yeah. Or in your case, it, it was the boss coming out and saying, we're closing. We have accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. <laughs> uh, whatever that was, at, at, at least at the time, was not made clear. No. Uh, I, I think it's probably a good bet that on paper you were turning a profit, especially I mean, this was just after this food and wine selection. Uh, did you ever gain a clue as as to what happened? You know, I think it 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 started as like a dream, right? It started as this like high concept that um, that basically Jorge, the the executive chef, he took on the job of being the the executive chef for the beer hall downstairs, only if he could open this high concept thing upstairs, and it was it was always this tacit understanding like. Um, you, as long as downstairs is going well, you can do whatever you want upstairs. And then basically the, the beer hall downstairs was like just as insanely busy as any place you could imagine when we first opened. I mean, it was typical for this, this, the beer hall to run a two or three hour wait and not just on like Friday nights when there was a, you know, big game or something in town. Like almost every day of the week, it was running hour, two hour, three hour long waits. Um, I think in their first year, they sold a million cheeseburgers. And as with a lot of restaurants that have many investors, uh, which they're private about, I don't, I don't have any idea who the investors actually are. But, but you know, you open a thirty-five million dollar destination brewery slash restaurant, you, you're probably going to have more than a couple people, <laughs> um, you know, indebted to whom you're indebted. Um, but in the end, you know, I think what, what probably came down to is it was a building that was operating uh, at probably like 75% efficiency because there was an event space that wasn't always booked. And our restaurant was not open for lunch and it was only open on four nights a week. So you don't have to be a really good uh, economist to think, well, what if it's open every day of the week <laughs> for lunch and dinner? And what if we lower our food costs? You know, we're just going to make a boatload more money. Um, and I think that's probably all it came down to. Um, but it was surreal. I mean, just totally surreal. We, we literally got the news that we were on the food and wine best restaurant list in America. And less than a month later, we got another, another mandatory meeting where it was announced that we were closing. Um, it was just so incomprehensible. What is in that space now? What are they doing with it? Uh, it's a pizza restaurant. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, you predicted with, that might happen. Yeah. Yeah. Jorge predicted that. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, <laughs> there was speculation among the staff that maybe it was going to be a nightclub. Maybe they were going to have exotic dancers. Um, oh. they, they thought one of my friends uh, said – Oh, it's t it's totally going to be a strip club, and they're going to call oh. it Surly's Girlies. Oh, excellent! Um, yes, yes. But yeah, when when it came down to it, Jorge guessed because if you think about pizza, like flour almost never goes bad. Tomatoes, you you just have cans and cans of the best tomatoes you you want, and they last forever. Cured meats last forever. You know, about the only thing that goes bad is the mozzarella, um, and that's you know pretty pretty cheap as far as ingredients go. A lot cheaper than duck tongues, that's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I guess I'm not even sure where where one might source duck tongues. I, I know. I, I I know we can't get them where I live. Yeah, um, no, I don't I don't see them even at the Whole Foods here. So. There is, of course, 
the the downside of restaurant life. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember when Julia Child uh, was was the only chef on television, and then of course yeah. came the Food Network, the celebrity chefs, the the culture of food and the foodies. And but of course, this is not typical. Restaurant life is really hard, and it's a tough business, and it, it grinds a person down physically. It's hard on the body. Yeah, uh, it's very tough on family life. You're working all the holidays, all the weekends, uh, all the weekend nights, and special events. Um, unless you are a celebrity chef or you're a partner in a restaurant group, uh, and there are some, you know, some very successful uh, mm-hmm. big city restaurant groups. Uh, but unless you do that. Even if you're a, a gifted, very gifted chef, like like your mentor uh, Jorge, you mentioned, um, obviously in the top, the top echelon of yeah. people who really know how to work with food, you're not going to make a ton of money. You were an insider, yet something of an outsider at the same time because you had another gig going. Obviously, can you imagine having taken that restaurant path? From the beginning, yeah. Would you do it again? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I remember, you know, several months into the job, um, I was figuring out not only that I was having a great time, um, but also that I was making really good money. Um, and in fact, I discovered by even like the third or fourth paycheck that by working, you know, three or four nights a week at the brewer's table. I was making as much money as I was as a tenured professor at the biggest private school in Minnesota. Um, and that just blew my mind. Um, and I don't know which way is more interesting. The fact that I was making that much money at a, at a restaurant or the fact that I wasn't making that much money <laughs> as somebody with, you know, multiple, um, you know, advanced degrees and all that stuff. Um, I don't feel bad by the way, my, uh, my uh, older daughter is a registered nurse with a bachelor's degree and five years of experience, and she yeah. makes more than I do. So as yep. a professor, uh, so it's yeah, pretty it's, common. It's just crazy, and just I, I feel like it's it's not what we expect when we go into higher education, um, or it's not what I expected anyway. Um, but I think you know, like like I was starting to say, I early in the experience at the Brewers Table, I thought I'll just quit my teaching job and I'll just do this full time. Um, and, and I, I announced this to a couple of my friends who were, you know, uh, colleagues at school and they basically staged an intervention, um, and are, are just like, you can't do this, dude. This is not going to work out for you. Um, yeah, like, Matt, Matt, we're here because we care about you. Yeah. Right. right. And, and really all, all they had to say was like, what, what if you like turn your ankle? Like, what do yes. you, what are you going to do if you yes. like you know, break a toe or, you know, get bad tennis elbow or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just made me realize like, uh, how much precarity there is among people who work in restaurants, um, because their health, their bodies, uh, their endurance, it's, <laughs> it's all on the line every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get a bad burn or a cut or, you know, uh, anything, semi-catastrophic happens and you're out of a job yeah. and you know you don't get paid if you don't show up to work unlike you know cushier jobs that have uh, better support systems like like being a teacher right where <laughs> you can get a substitute or you can teach from home or you know you can do all sorts of asynchronous offline stuff mm-hmm. um but you, 
you can't wait tables asynchronously, that's for sure. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> you do write that in, in contrast to restaurant life. Um, and, and you do mention uh, a, a couple of, at a couple of points in the book that you 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 want to emphasize that you do still enjoy your academic work because yeah. it, it is your livelihood and and but you write that you often felt lonely as an academic and yeah. I can identify with that you you might like your students but they're not really your friends they're they're younger than you uh, there, there's obviously the, the power differential. Your your colleagues are probably like mine, nice people. You like them, but you know they're off busy with their own pursuits, which may be quite different from yours. And many of them have families at home, family yep. responsibilities. Uh, can you reflect that? Is there a generation of of lonely academics out there? Man, I I hadn't thought so. I thought I was like on my own, and it was just like, you know, uh, <laughs> I was doing it wrong somehow. Um, but. Uh, the more people I talk to after the books come out, um, I, I hear from quite a few folks who are like, you know, amen, brother. Like this is, this is totally how it is. Like un unless you get that sort of position and it can be anywhere, right? It could be at a community college or an Ivy league institution. Um, but unless you're hired, like just at the right point with a bunch of other people who are close to your age, who have, who have, or don't have kids, your age, your kid's age, um, chances are it's it, it you're not gonna like hang out that much you know you might have a a party here and there or a, a holiday gathering um but for the most part yeah you you teach your class in kind of solitude despite the fact that you're you're in a in a room with like 20 or so other people mm -hmm. um but as soon as the bell rings they're all into the wind mm -hmm. um and yeah, it just seems like at the end of the day, everybody's exhausted. All the teachers I know are just exhausted and mm -hmm. they don't want to hang out. They want to go home um, yeah. and, you know, do their own thing. And I guess and it's true that many of us in, in academia, academia uh, we have very rich internal lives, which, of course, is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but can be, uh, again, isolating in a sense. Yeah. We're not necessarily the life of the party, gregarious and... So maybe the brewer's table was was another side of your personality that sort of complemented what you did at at uh, St. Thomas. You know, I, I always thought of uh, not just at St. Thomas and the brewer's table, but every restaurant I worked in alongside, you know, graduate school or whatever. It was always this like tremendous analgesic to what was going on in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I think for the most part, it was because... In higher education, especially, um, it's just increasingly a kind of an anemic um, sort of place where you're you're allowed to be passionate, but only to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, and in in restaurants, like I don't know, there's just like a, a recklessness of enthusiasm that that you can encounter where people are just um, so in, enthused about it. But I think the other thing is at the core of the mission. Um, most people that go to college aren't there to like learn for the sake of learning, right? They want the degree. They want to get a better job. Yeah. And fair enough. Um, whereas most people who come to restaurants, they want to have a good time. They want to eat. They want to be nourished. Um, they want to be entertained. Um, and it seems to me after, you know, especially those years at the brewer's table, that's why we were all there too. We were there to be nourished and entertained um, and to have a good time. And it was just, it was so uncommon 
as far as places go, everyone I knew, um, with maybe one or two exceptions, like everyone just loved working there. Mm -hmm. Um, unlike basically every other job in the world, you know, um, (laughs) um, it it was nutty. Um, yes. On the evening, the brewer's table served its very last customer. You rode your bike to work as usual, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. Um, and at work, uh, as you were riding to work and then later after work, you cried as did <laughs> most of your coworkers. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's a testament. You, you, you realized that you had been part of something really incredible and now it was gone. Uh, it, it was the brewer's table. Our enterprises like this simply too amazing to last a long time. You know, it, it would be, a little too self-congratulatory to say, to say, you know, uh, it was a utopia, um, given that I wrote a book about it, but the, the book had nothing to do with it. Like the, the fact of the matter is the, the place was, you know, like a utopia. It was like, you know, Walden or Biosphere or Blythedale Farms or whatever. Um, it was, I don't think we knew it was an experiment, but I think in the end, that's, that's kind of what it had to be. Like it was, it was just kind of unsustainable, um, to have that much, I don't know, that much fun, <laughs> that much mm-hmm. passion, that much like, uh, just intensity. It was great while it lasted, but yeah, I think to an extent that, that greatness was defined by the fact that, um, it had to have an end because mm-hmm. it, they would have needed to start compromising, um, they would have needed to like stop reinventing things constantly. And that would have meant, you know, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been the same restaurant anymore. So I guess that's common in artistic endeavors. You, you look at, for example, television shows or movies or yeah. plays, there's a, there's a, a, an element of spontaneity and magic. And at a certain point it's gone and yeah. you can keep going there are, for example, rock bands that are touring 40 <laughs> years after their first records, but the first records are still the ones that people want to hear. Yeah, and that's they say, right. okay, if they want to pay us to play that stuff, we'll play the stuff because it's better than driving a cab or working a temp job, but the magic can't always last. Yeah, there's a, a documentary about the band uh, LCD Sound System um, that basically was the same kind of thing. Like they they were known to be the sort of band that, you know, live, uh, as my friend Augie, who was a bartender at the brewer's table said, he's like, they could melt the floor, man. Like they could just absolutely melt the floor. Um, but in the end, you know, uh, fans wanted to hear the hits. Um, and in fact, that's what their documentary is called. Shut up and play the hits. (laughs) How have you brought this experience? And I guess what's, what's, you could say that one of the one of the really good takeaways here is that as we go through life, we find things that illuminate our experiences, and and with any luck, we can pass them on to others. How have you brought this experience to your students? Now you treat you teach creative writing, specifically mm-hmm. creative nonfiction. You uh, in at the the undergrad and grad level. At, yeah. How do you bring this to your students in terms of telling them how to bring a great story to the page? Yeah, it's funny. Initially, I thought, <laughs> I better pretend this never happened, <laughs> right? Um, 
I better pretend like I've never had a restaurant job while I was also teaching at this university. Um, and then I thought, well, the book's a little critical of, you know, higher education in general and St. Thomas in particular. Um, I better just keep my mouth shut. Um, but more and more, uh, well, I shouldn't say more and more, like it just was published in October. So it, mm-hmm. it's, it's very new. Um, but last semester I started talking to my students about the fact that like what we do for work, um, doesn't necessarily need to be like what we thought it should be when we were, you know, declaring our majors and all that. Um, and that, you know, you should just be more open-minded, I guess. Um, and, and consider jobs that are, uh, not the typical extension of a four-year degree. You know, part of, part of the, the sort of, uh, realization for, for me in writing the book was I basically incurred close to a hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt so that I could be a teacher who basically makes as much as like an assistant manager at target. That was completely eye opening to me. And I thought like, wow, I kind of got put over the barrel for this. And then I realized my students pay $65,000 a year. <laughs> and I mean, not everybody obviously pays, you know, the, the sticker price. Um, but some of my students are incurring like double the debt I did. And for what, for an undergraduate degree? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that I like am, am calling into question the value of higher education, just that <laughs> I, I want my students to be clear eyed about, is it worth it? Like, is, is that what they're doing, you know, on purpose? Or are they just like following, you know, a kind of, you know, chain of experiences that just sort of play out uh, without really trying hard to do it? You know, you go to high school, you go to college, you get an office job or something like that. Um, now, now, you raise an interesting point there because I am uh, I'm about 20 years older than you. Uh, I'm retiring in the spring. Nice. Uh, I was I was a big city journalist for 25 years. That was my that was my vocation. That was my mm-hmm. calling in life. I became a professor essentially when the when the business imploded, <clears throat> and I do feel a, a duty. I think it's a duty. Professors have a duty to not tell their students, "Oh, geez, you're wasting your time with the liberal arts," because I am the last person to tell anyone that. Yeah, I, you know, when I went to Michigan State, I discovered the liberal arts, especially English and history, and it changed my life. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I'm so indebted to them, and and I, I still love the university for having given me that. So I'm the last person to say one should always maximize one's economic utility. I think one should one should one should be passionate. I think, as you mentioned about the restaurant business, passion is more important than anything. But yeah. there is, don't you think, especially in a in a somewhat risky occupational area like creative writing, as opposed to let's say accounting, which is yeah. very big at my university, there is a duty for the professor to say, keep your options open, follow your passions. But following your passions doesn't mean just being passionate. It means working really hard and yeah. trying to set yourself up above the, you know, the ordinary herd. Don't expect that the degree is going to be a golden ticket for you because alone, it almost certainly will not be. It yeah, has to be combined sure. with other things and be open to other things and be, a, be an engaged person. 
And is that something you talk to your students about? Do you think do you think it's incumbent on us as faculty members to do that? Yeah, for sure. And I I definitely don't do it enough, right? Because it's uh, the hard truth that they'd rather yes. not know about. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And I have students. I had a student just this semester who's like, yeah, you know, I guess I'll become a novelist. Sure. Why not? And like, but she was so like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'll just do that. And it's like, I mean, between you and me, Jim, like how many people can we name who are novelists and that's their job? Like that's, they've, they've made their entire careers only writing books. Yes. Um, you uh, know, I bet fewer than five. <laughs> yes. And on the other hand, the ones who do it the best are so incredibly brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and and so incredibly passionate and yes, super yes. hard workers. Like, and maybe just a little bit lucky, but there's not that much luck involved, I don't yeah. think. So, no, no, you're right. There's there's it's it's a perfect nexus in a lot of ways. But, yes, absolutely. Um, but I do feel like as as I get older and as I had this experience at the brewer's table and realized like, wow, I didn't even need a college degree to yeah. earn to get what was one of the best jobs and best paying jobs in my life. And uh I, yeah, I, I think for a long time, especially teaching creative writing, we just kind of let people r run through our degree as though they would go, you know, with uh, away from a BA with <laughs> with a BA in creative writing to a job teaching or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and usually, of course, they have to get at least an MFA, but probably, you know, another terminal degree and also publish a book or two or a bunch of essays or poems or something. Um, and man, I've, I've been teaching at St. Thomas for 16 years and I feel like I can only name, well, I don't know, maybe 10 people who have landed the job that they essentially went to, to school for, you know, that's um, uh, I'd say actually pretty good <laughs> as a track record. I'm, I'm definitely rounding like up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, but, as for you, you uh, uh, you wrote a memoir about fixing up a former crack house in Salt Lake City, which sounds great, which apparently from the description also had parallels to working on your own life. So a sort of sort of a meta narrative there. Um, yeah, you know, for sure. Patching up holes, you know, in 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 more than one sense, literal and figurative. Uh, and then, of course, this uh, this memoir as well. Uh, you have mentioned have as having worked on fiction. You've you've written for for magazines uh, of, of of the popular sort and the and also of the you know the the prestigious the, the literary magazines. What's next in your own career as far as writing goes? What would you like to do? Is there something you a germ of an idea? Maybe another bizarre pursuit of participatory <laughs> journalism that might be brewing there. You know, I've I've been working on a, a manuscript about uh, something I never thought I'd write about, which is um, coaching youth hockey. Um, like I didn't play growing up, had no intention of it being any part of my life. But then, you know, uh, my son was born in Minneapolis, which meant by definition, before he was like six or seven, he must learn how to skate and play hockey. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. We just, we, we live in a part of St. Paul where, um, I mean, two doors down is where Herb Brooks lived when he was a kid. Um, it's just in the absolute water of this place. Um, and, uh, it, it just so happened that when, when my son started playing, 
Um, there were about 40 kids on his mic team and there was only one guy helping coach. Um, and I knew how to skate. So I'm like, somebody has got to do something to, to help this guy out. Uh, and anyway, uh, that, that sort of was its own kind of like bad news bears experience where just mm -hmm. everybody was like all over the map in terms of skating ability and skill level. Um, but then just last year, my son ended up playing in the, the Bantam A state tournament. Um, and I just realized like, holy cow, like I, I've seen my kid go from, um, absolute zero to like being basically on top of the hockey universe as far as mm -hmm. youth sports go. Um, and kind of like when I realized when they announced that the Brewers table was, was ending, I'm like, wow, I've, I've, I've just experienced like the whole kind of spectrum of mm -hmm. youth sports. Um, and it was absolutely not intentional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so anyway, we'll see where it goes, but, but that's what I've been working on. That's interesting because it's, a. Uh... I mean, that's a, it can be a metaphor for many, many bigger things in life. Yeah. And because not, of course, not everyone is going to play for the NHL. Right. Um, but there are so many lessons to be learned and benefits to be taken away from an experience like that. I, I could see you definitely see you mining uh, a, a story like that. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's not going to be a typical, you know, sports narrative where it's like, um, you've got high aspirations and then there are setbacks and then you overcome them and then you win the big game. Like, you know, they got kicked out in the first round. Like okay. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't win. But at the same time, just, just to be at that level uh -huh. in a state like Minnesota, um, it's almost like, you know, making it to the final four of the, you know, um, NCAA uh, mm -hmm. tournament. Um, so uh, at the same time, um, I, like, I think I'd like to say it's, it's about him, but it's really, it's a, it's a selfish narrative. It's about mm -hmm. the experience I got. Okay. Um, and, uh, because it, it, it ended up being, um, just one of the best things in my life was, um, was one of the last things I intended to do. And serendipity, that's uh, serendipity and passion, the, the, the great things in life that, that bring us joy. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a, a line from a, a Rick Bass novel about, about his dog, uh, mm -hmm. Coulter, um, where, what is it? He says, how we stumble into grace, you know, mm -hmm. uh, unbidden. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I feel like if, if there's anything I've been lucky enough to do, it's, it's to, to stumble into moments of grace, you know, a couple times in my life here. Our guest today has been Matthew Batt. His new book is called The Last Supper Club, A Waiter's Requiem. It was published by the University of Minnesota Press just at the end of last year. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Jim, my pleasure. Thanks so much. This is the New Books Network. I'm Jim Cates. <laughs>